Hello and welcome to the Andrew Ferris Podcast. Thanks so much for joining me for another episode of the show. Today I have an interview that I have hyped up a couple of times leading up to this show. And that is because it is with the great Sean McGinnis, who's become a friend in the e-commerce space. Sean and I, I think, got connected via Twitter like everybody in e-commerce and that sort of thing, but uh, have, have become friends since, actually got to meet this year. And that's not the really important thing about Sean. The important thing about Sean is that he has been on the inside of fast growing, improving e-commerce businesses at high levels of them in ways where he just has a whole bunch of insight about a lot of what it means to scale your e-commerce business. And so I'm going to pick his brain today about a lot of things related to that from the marketing side to especially some of the team leadership and management side. I think Sean is a particularly helpful voice on things like how do you grow and lead a team well for a business that is scaling in e-commerce while maintaining the amount of leanness that you need to keep an e-commerce business profitable, all those kinds of things. This is going to be a good conversation because Sean is a good and interesting thinker and you are going to learn from him. So let's jump in. Sean, how are you? I'm great, Andrew. How are you? Good. I'm glad that we're uh, finally doing this because I feel like we've interacted so many times. We've met in person and this just sort of needed to happen. Like You just needed to come on and just talk and let us hear from you. So thanks for making time to do it. My pleasure. As you know, I'm a huge fan of the pod. I mean, I've been listening since day one and really enjoyed everything that you've been doing since that time. So it's a real pleasure to be here. Yeah, thanks, man. You, you've been a real encouragement to me in that process too. There's sometimes voices who come along and say, hey, keep at it. You're doing a good job. And it's just funny. Like, yeah, that stuff goes a long way. So I appreciate it a lot. I care about doing a good job. So when people feel like they're getting benefit out of it and are talking about it and all that, I notice and it's really helpful. So you currently actually are not in e-commerce, which is one of the funny things about the timing of this. But that's okay. We can talk about that in a minute too. But let's talk a little bit about your resume to start. So people basically have a sense of who you are and where you're from. So sort of the important details here. First of all, you're like 12 feet tall. That's something I didn't Not know about you. Not much taller than you, right? I mean, you're, you've got some height to you. How tall six, are you? 6'4". Six, 6'4". Four. Four. I'm shrinking. No, that can't age. be I mean, true. Is that true? The old high school resume, the first driver's license said 6'5", but I think I'm kind of settling in over, over the years. I think I've got you at 6'5", still, because I'm like 6'3", six, 6'4", six, and I felt like when we met, you were definitely taller than me. It's the width. It's the, br- the I don't breadth. know. Yeah, may- maybe that's it. I don't know. I just didn't know that from Twitter. You know, that's all I'm saying. Yeah, no, but you recently moved on from being the president at Kuru Footwear. So that's probably the e-commerce resume piece of record here. So give people a little sense of of some background on you, where you are, and sort of how long you were at Kuru for and what your role was there. And and also give people a sense of what Kuru is and does and what makes them a different shoe company than others. Yeah, sure. So Kuru Footwear is a D2C brand that focuses only on selling the e-commerce. The brand has some unique technology that was invented by the founder and CEO of Kuru Footwear, a guy named Brett Rasmussen. Kuru is based in Salt Lake City, and that technology gets built into every pair of shoes that Kuru makes. And it turns out, I don't think he, I know he didn't set out to to do this with this technology invention. He was just trying to build a better shoe. But that technology turns out to help people with plantar fasciitis and a number of other kind of foot pain and ailments and fatigue issues. And so Kuru has become known as one of the leading footwear vendors and specialists with for people with foot pain, various different types of foot particularly with plantar fasciitis. Yeah. So that's funny. I actually didn't realize that it wasn't built to solve that problem because I associated it so much with that problem. That's a very common problem. Is that right? Yeah. Millions of Americans every year get diagnosed with plantar fasciitis. They try and solve it through lots of different ways. There's stretches you can do. I remember 20 years ago when I had a role at Thompson Reuters, one of my good buddies was a competitive triathlete and one of the the top competitors in his age bracket. Every now and then I'd walk in and he'd be rolling his foot on a foot roller or he'd People freeze water bottles and use those to try and, you know, treat the pain. A lot of that times it doesn't really, those treatments, it's one of many things you can try. And we get a lot of great feedback or, you know, Kuru gets a lot of great feedback. I'm still in the habit of saying we, because I just left the business about five weeks ago. But, you know, customers tell Kuru and the team quite a bit about how the technology that was invented really does kind of change their lives and remove that pain almost permanently and almost immediately. It's really cool. Okay. And then what can you tell us? So when did you start there? So I started in October of 2019, right around the Halloween time. So end of the month. Cool. Did you have previous e-commerce experience? I did. So yeah, I ran marketing for a division inside of big Sears. So most people are familiar with kind of Sears corporate. 
Um, Sears was run in a very unique way in that there were a number of different business units that were kind of semi-autonomous, somewhat embedded in each other. So I was hired as kind of the marketing general manager over a business unit called Sears Parts Direct. So we sold appliance repair parts to the users that were brave enough to try to do the appliance repairs on their own, right? Big Sears, one of the largest retailers in the country when it comes to appliances, if not, I think it was the largest at the time, you know, Lowe's and Home Depot were just kind of on the up and up at that time. And Sears had 11,000 repair vehicles on the road every day. So you could call and schedule a repair and our repair technicians would go out and do the repairs for you. And on the back of that business, on the infrastructure of that business, on the supply chain of that business, the relationship with all the vendors, 20, 20 years or so ago, 25 years ago, some young executive was like, hey, what if we did a catalog that you know people that were trying to, they were brave enough to try to do that repair themselves. They want to replace their own dishwasher door handle. Great. Like here's the part, you know? So that business grew and of course migrated to the web like every other catalog business ever did. So I ran marketing for that business and kind of built up a team inside of Big Sears. I think I knew you had come from Sears, but I I didn't really, yeah, I don't think I had put all those dots together. And then you came to Kuru. What brought you to Kuru? Why did you end up there? Yeah, so I was recruited from Sears out to lead a pretty big digital team in Salt Lake City. So that was about eight years ago. I led a team of about 150 digital marketers in the lead gen space. So they were partnering with a number of home services companies like AT&T and Verizon and Frontier Communications and Centrink, all the major telephone companies, most of the major home security companies dabbled in some insurance. And so the team that I ran built and maintained and improved the performance of websites that looked and felt like the brand. And we spent our money in Google through kind of a negotiated arrangement and partnership with the brand. So today, whoever your telephone company is, if you're on a search for you know, ATT Internet Chicago, for example, because AT&T is the internet provider there. You'll see AT&T's branded site in position one. At that time, you'd have seen our website, attsavings.com in position two. And that was a position that we held in partnership with AT&T. We spent our money there, drove you to our website. From there, we drove you to our call center where we had, you know, thousands of call center agents and we would, you know, basically service you in, in partnership with the brand. So we were an authorized reseller of a number of different home services partnerships. So we had those 150 folks or so managing, I think about 30 different websites on behalf of 13 different brands. There was a one relationship that became kind of more of an agency of record. So I built a team of 30 people and we had the mattress firm accounts formally for a couple of years. So we spent all of their paid search money and improved the performance of their e-com website as well. So a little bit of variety of this and that, but it was kind of a weird, we always talked about how it was kind of the best of both worlds where you had this agency vibe and feel, but you're also kind of acting as a brand, right? So you were a little bit in between and seeing kind of, we used to pitch it at least as the best of both worlds. You know, if you're a peer agency that comes with a certain set of expectations as an employee and, you know, you're always on call or you're constantly on the hook and you're, you're juggling a bunch of different brands. So we would have teams that were focused on maybe two or three different brands at once. And they always kind of sat together and worked together and were in that Set kind of piled up and potted up environment. This is all pre COVID, of course. But, you know, we're, we have this protection of, you know, we're a pretty, pretty healthy nine figure business growing at a rapid clip and then a very profitable one that really took care of our customers. They've been in the news for less than stellar reasons lately. The CEO has been in some hot water. You might have seen some of the videos. So the business went through a couple of acquisitions after I left. And so it's been an interesting thing to kind of watch from afar, but love the business when I was there and built some really great lifetime friendships and relationships too. That sounds like an insanely like tactical business in terms of like how much the click costs, you're spending your own money on it. Exactly how much money can you make off that click? Exactly yep. how much do you need to convert? That's I'm assuming that's what that game was like, just like back out the math, spend the money towards that end. And that's how you make money. Is that right? Yeah. Deep understanding of funnels. I've often said that in some respects, Clearlink and our biggest competitor, a lot of more folks are familiar with the competitor, which would be Red Ventures. A lot of people are familiar with Red. So those kind of players actually invented like call tracking technology before call tracking technology became a SaaS and got, you know, appended to all these other different business units. We used our own internal technology for years and years. And that team had you know, thousands of different phone numbers that were constantly rotating. And we would apply that phone number, inject it through a JavaScript element directly on the website. You click from a Google ad, we could tie your call back to the specific Google ad. So we knew exactly what 
calls were converting and why and what channels they came from. So yes, hyper in terms of very analytical, very data-driven. You know, we had a massive kind of data team, data science team that was continually sort of providing the metrics to the various directors that were watching and running their various businesses in partnership with the brand. So we had a compliance team of lawyers that were constantly evaluating and making sure that what we were seeing on the site was in, in concert with what the brands were allowing us to say. So very kind of highly governed that way. But yeah, very funnel-driven and metrics-driven business. Yeah. What did you learn from that <laughs> in terms of on the, mar I mean, I'm sure a lot of things, but I'm thinking especially about the hyper-tactical sort of stuff like that. Was there anything that kind of came to the surface as you worked in that agency that was sort of, that maybe that you took with you to Kuru or, or, or not? Uh, actually quite the opposite. It's very interesting. So the, I was kind of brought in as the salt, the old salty dog to try to provide a little bit of kind of structure and I won't call it maturity because that's not fair, but it was, you know, Hey, bring your, most of my experience was in much larger companies. I had 20 years at Thompson Reuters before Sears and a, a little bit of startup world as well. So I, I was the guy that understood more than enough about digital, had, came from the SEO space originally, but was brought in to kind of evaluate the landscape and try to think about like, what's the right org structure for that team? And how do we hmm. you know, think about accountabilities and who's going to do what in, in, in concert with what? And a lot of what I applied to that business is still in place there, which is kind of interesting because there were some pushback originally on, you know, I, there were some changes that I put in place pretty early that were like, people were like, how do you, where do you come off telling us how to do this? You know, you're a little wet behind the ears. You've only been here for eight, 10, 12 weeks, whatever it was. But my role was more, I don't want to say supervisory, but, you know, 13 brands and 30 websites. I was not nearly as deep in the weeds. And, and one of the things that I was stayed close with, and in fact, hired quite a few people that were at ClearLink to kind of fuel the growth of Kuru. And had many conversations with some of my close friends. Like I felt like I was so much more in the weeds and so much better at my job, air quote, because I was able to focus on one site and really just dig in and get much more tactical around like, what do we think is converting? What kind of tests are we going to run this period? You know, where are we spending money? And the ability to feel like I was impacting and driving results just because I was focused on that one brand. It's very similar to your story, right? On the four by four hundred side. Like, where are we gonna spend that time and attention, where does that investment go from a dollar, from a resource, from a people perspective? And can we do it across this breadth of things? And that's, I mean, 13 brands is, we had people that were over those brands and were managing those brands aggressively. I just felt like at my level as EVP of marketing, I was not either, I wouldn't say not able to, I chose not to, right? I was focused on things that were higher up because that I felt like was what they had hired me to do. And just the vibe of really digging in and getting under the covers inside Kuru, it felt like a totally different world to me. Yeah, I, that makes perfect sense. Um, so let's talk about that. Do you, I, mean, I want to come back to something you said about the management kind of elements and some of that stuff too, but talk about the sort of Kuru story a little in terms of what you can say about what those three years that you were there were like. I know you started off in an SVP role and then became the president. Ultimately, you came through a marketing pipe, the marketing side yep. of the business, right? That, yeah, okay. So ended up as the president of Kuru and how did that go? You said you, you were closer to drive. I'm curious to hear you expand on when you say you're closer to decisions that were made that could actually drive results. So that's what I want you to expand on basically is like what actually drove results there and what were those results as much as you're allowed to say about that? Yeah, sure. Happy to expand on it. So in 2019 was a down year. I've talked about this in the past. I've talked about it in San Diego at the conference that we were at. Revenue was down like 30%. It was just a bloodbath of a year. There's some backstory about how that came to that. But I came in toward the end of the year and spent the first month and a half or so building dashboards to try to understand what had transpired and what got us to where we were, kind of evaluating the state of the landscape there. They were working with a full-service digital agency at the time, and I tried to partner with them and really give them some time to, to help me understand what might work or what had been working. After a period of about nine weeks, I, there was, it was pretty clear that they were not driving the results that we needed. And to be fair, we weren't giving them the guidance that they needed to get us there because we didn't have people inside the business that really understood it. So I pulled the plug and made the decision to hire internally two full-time people to replace the work that agency was doing. So I inherited a real small team of about five folks. There was one guy, an internal developer. There was a guy that was kind of over the e-com business. There was an email guy. There was a, a young creative that did social and creative design work for us and things of that nature. 
and then a, or sort of an assistant admin on the e-com side. And I hired those two full-time people. One handled paid search for us and one handled paid social. And then I went back to the my partner from Sears, who I hired as a paid search manager and then promoted to paid search director and um, elevated to a really important role inside of Sears to rebuild the account structure in our Google campaigns from the ground up. So she, it was kind of a project basis. The paid search person that I hired was helping write ad copy within that and really understand and, you know, collaborate on the structure because all of us were new, frankly, you know, this is happening like January, February, 2020. We start embarking on this rebuild and launching various aspects of the campaigns and the account as we go. COVID hits and between the rebuild and COVID sales really started to take off a little bit in March, but really April, May, because we started with the branded stuff first. By the time we got done completely rebuilding all the non-brand stuff in Google, it changed everything. You know, we, in December, when I pulled the plug on the agency, I personally went in and disabled 20,000 ads across the various platforms. Basically, you know, we were losing money. We were bleeding out. We were upside down every month from like March through the end of 2019. And what I needed to do was to buy us runway. I saw that there was very clearly a very profitable business here. It just wasn't at the scale that they were spending money at. And so to get us back to that profitability, we literally called it the baseline project. Like I'm cutting the unprofitable marketing spend. And we went from losing money to making money literally with the flick of a wrist. It was a massive difference. You had 20,000 Google ads running? Google and Facebook and Bing. Okay. Can you say how big the business, how much, what was the distribution of that? I don't recall, honestly. Yeah. Do you have any idea how, like, oh, in terms of where we were spending? Yeah. Yeah. That was more, that was probably more even. That would have been probably like 70% paid search and 30% paid social. Maybe a little higher than that on the paid social side. But by the time we were done, it was 90 10. We are very much a demand capture business, or they were when I left them. That might have changed in the last five weeks. I doubt it. But it's one of the big questions that I've always had. I felt, you know, we joked for two and a half years that we were the non D to C brand, right? You know, the D to C playbook is everything that you all have done at four by 400 and so many other brands do. I just talked to another shoe brand founder the other day and they're, you know, they're killing it on Facebook. And I think the big question that I've always had and continue to have is the value proposition of a Kuru so unique that we struggle to communicate visually what the benefit is, or is it just that we have this problem where a customer that we're able to target at the bottom of the funnel and inject ourselves. It's very similar to the Parts Direct business, honestly. Parts Direct, all of our spend was on paid search. Why? Because people know they have a problem. They're searching for a very specific answer to that problem. Yeah, I'm like, I'm, we were running at the, around at the bottom of the funnel with a basket, trying to catch as many deals that were falling out as possible. We spent, you know, eight figure plus in just that one business in Google. And when you move up the funnel, I used to say, like, I can't create demand. I can't sneak into your house and break your dishwasher and convince you you can fix it. Like, that's not, it's not an option. So where we spent money at Sears was to, we spent a massive amount building out content campaigns to convince you that you could do the repair. So we built out a whole YouTube channel that walked you through step-by-step step how to do the actual repair to give you confidence in how to do it so that you'd eventually come and buy the part from us, right? Kuru is kind of similar. There's a lot of people searching for a, a solution to plantar fasciitis. We slide in and say, hey, there's this really stylish shoe that looks good and actually has 15 years of a track record of solving this exact problem. Why try a stretch or this or that or the other thing? We've got this technology we built into every single pair of shoes that we make. It dynamically cups the heel. It flexes and it supports you in every step. Like here's, you know, give it a try for 130 bucks or 150 bucks. And more and more often than not, it works and people stick with us and buy multiple pair over the, over, over the years. That is so fascinating. I mean, I'm just amazed still to go back about to the, to 20,000 ads being turned off and being not profitable. Like it's just an incredible amount of work people did that didn't generate, you know. Well, I'll get, I'll do you one better. I'll go back to the Sears story again. When I hired the market, so the I've told this story a couple of times in other podcasts that are not even in existence anymore, so it's probably worth going over again. I had no paid experience when I joined Sears, none. And I went to the VP that owned the PL and I said, does it concern you at all that we're spending eight figures in a channel, but we have no internal expertise to validate whether the agency is actually doing a good job or not? 
Like that was my pitch. She goes, well, it seems to be working. I was like, well, I'd like to understand what they're doing. Like he goes, well, like, yeah, you know, let's take a look at it. Why don't you put together a business case and we'll talk. So I go to the agency and I say, hey, what are you doing for me? Like, help me understand what, what's the actual, give me a time study. Help me understand who are the people on our account? What are they actually doing on a week by week basis? So after dragging their feet, they come back and they say, well, we're, we're, here's what we're doing. Here's a little spreadsheet. Well, there's four or five different roles and there's this activity and that activity. I'm getting 45 hours a week on my account or our account per week. 26 of those hours are devoted to meetings and reporting. So I'm getting 19 hours a week actually trying to drive my business for about $400,000 a year, which on a percent of spend is actually nothing because we're spending mid eight figures or, you know, good solid eight figures. And I go back to the, the P&L holder. I say, look, how about we just go hire two full-time people? Now I got 80 hours a week that I control. So we do that. We hire this, this person. And the, the, I kid you not, the first thing she did after digging in and understanding her, she deleted 900,000 keywords that were cluttering the account and getting no clicks at all or getting clicks and no sales in the last 12 months. And then she embarked on an, the whole account restructure and restructured the account. We grew revenue 40% on the same spend. So like what you get with some of these agencies is this, well, we're just going to continually like dump every keyword we can imagine into your account structure and see what happens. And being the idiot who had never done paid, I walked in, I was like, woo, 1.2 million keywords in our account. We're spending big dollars with Google. Don't we rock, right? Like, isn't this awesome? And it's like, I mean, I was a little terrified, but I'm like, I hired you. You're the expert. Let's go delete those keywords. She's like, I can always recover them. I'm like, I trust you. Let's go. And she deleted all 900,000 keywords. You thought 20,000 was bad. 900,000 is a bigger number, but it's a lot. Huh? It's crazy. Did you build up in sort of an expertise in Google? Because it's actually one of the most common things I see when I look at a brand is like wasted Google spend. It's it happens in a couple of different ways. One of them is the most obvious is overspending on brand. You know, like I, I have a client where it was like they're getting a two and a half to one on brand spend. It's just like, well, that's just a giant cost center in your business. And if you if if we just solve that right away, you're probably going to pay for most of my fees on doing this. Like immediately, it'll take me five minutes. You know, like and that's like a really common thing. And then you see wasted categorical search spend where people where there's all kinds of keywords m making their way into things that shouldn't be in there and i'm not talking about the normal aspect of machine learning that happens as part of you know some broader match and some categorical shopping etc but i just mean like you know clearly wasted terms you know competitor brands that you're never going to win for all those kinds of things or like youtube dollars being spent display dollars just that don't make any sense all those things but what i find is that there's like because google actually represents roughly five plus different ways of doing advertising. If I run Facebook ads and I distribute my ad to desktop newsfeed versus Instagram stories, it's the same ad and it works basically the same way. It's not really like different, different ads, but the Google search ad and a display remarketing ad are completely different things. And so it's so learning Google well actually requires like mastering a whole bunch of stuff. Did you sort of ever get yourself with a demand a demand capture business like that? educated in a way that you felt like you could manage that spend better? How did you go from being the guy who was excited about 1.2 million keywords to a guy who went like, oh, actually that was not good? Yeah. The answer to your question is I didn't. The scenario I described where I turned off the 20,000 ads was the first time in my life I had ever touched an account and did something with it. So I had managed in two different occasions teams that spent $70 million a year and had never once bid on a keyword. Like I was proud of that fact. I ran around like breaking my elbow, trying to pat myself on the back. Like, yeah, like I'm Mr. Generalist. I came in over the top. I never, I didn't come up through the, you know, a marketing function. I came in over the top leading an SEO team originally coming in from a sales management role where I was selling websites and selling SEO services. So I went from that to like leading teams and I never really was a tactician, I guess you'd say. But yeah, that's why my focus has always been on hiring the right people and bringing in experts that I trust and value their time and expertise and setting them loose on it and saying like, you tell me what to do. I trust you. Let's, let's discuss and debate before you go and do. So I'm, I know more than enough to be dangerous, but I do not have that Google expertise to go in and, you know, play genius. This episode of the Andrew Ferris podcast is brought to you by Settle. Settle helps businesses thrive by taking the worry out of cash flow management with an all-in-one platform helping e-commerce brands level up their cash flow from startup 
to what's next. You know about the challenge and importance of cash management in an e-commerce business and Settle has built their platform specifically for e-commerce founders to help you do all the things you need to do to manage cash well, including getting access to short-term financing with extended payment terms. Now you've heard me talk on this show about the scourge of bad debt expensive debt that's available in e-commerce to so many e-commerce brands right now. But Settle's extended payment terms offers a whole bunch of stuff that does not fit that profile. In fact, I reached out to Settle specifically to be a sponsor on this show after I had a great experience using them to do some inventory-based financing when I ran brands at 4x400. Settle offers competitive rates and flexibility over your repayment window. They underwrite based on your holistic company profile, not just sales, it's not just revenue-based financing. They They offer fast access to financing. You can get approved and ready to finance invoices in as little as one to three days. Founders also love Settle because it only gets better over time. As your company grows, Settle uses data to evolve your credit profile and of course, access all of your extended payment terms directly from Settle's accounts payable platform. It is really a great solution for you to consider in a lot of different ways for managing cash in your e-commerce business, including the financing end of things. To learn more about how Settle is helping brands turn cash flow into growth, sign up for a product demo today at settle.com slash Andrew Ferris. That's settle.com slash Andrew F-A-R-I-S. So let's let's validate the results and then let's come back to that. So Kuru turned around, got back to being profitable, and then you just left five weeks ago. How did it do over that timeline when you were there? Yeah, we more than doubled revenue in between 19 and 21. The business was more profitable than ever. And you know, we started to really build out the team and build out the capabilities. I'm really excited. The team that's there now that's in control is an incredible team filled with really talented people. And I'm going to watch with great interest where they go from here. I think the brand has incredible upside and just really, really excited for them to take it to the next level. They're really investing in brand as kind of the next step to really try and validate, like, should we give up on Facebook? I mean, we tried it three different ways. Is the fourth way the magic way? Do we need to hire a creative director or a creative strategist to really help us understand and test the right ways of positioning the brand on Facebook? Yeah, the one big question, I keep coming back to some of these other brands that have really even in the shoe space alone, right? Let's talk about two of them, for example. Visually compelling and easy to understand value proposition. Kizik, our friends across town in Salt Lake City, right? They're the hands-free shoe company. People were doing hands-free shoes for years and years before Kizik started branding it that way and creating their own category that they are the they are the leaders in that category, right? They visually represent it through some really awesome, te- through some videos that make clear why you would want that type of a shoe, right? Personally, I've never understood, even though I'm wearing a pair of slip-ons right now, I've never owned a pair of Kizik's, but it's easy to understand. Like let's, and let's talk about Vessi, right? Stylish shoes that are waterproof. Awesome. Incredible, you know, simple to understand, visually communicated value proposition, right? Keep it simple. I get it. Now you take something that has unique patented technology that, you know, some customers go, oh my gosh, I get it. It's amazing. And some customers are like, I don't believe you. It's patented. What does that mean? I don't understand that, right? I can't see it. I can't visually communicate because visually communicating is about pain relief. Like the idiot, not genius marketer in me, that's not a creative strategist, I always tried to align that to like a drug. You know, imagine all of the medicinal and drug advertising we see on TV and how crazy it is in terms of, yeah, everything's unicorns and rainbows and like I, you know, Sky Rizzi and this and that and the other thing, whatever it is that you're seeing on TV, everything is always rosy and whatever the, the problem was before is now gone. And you're just taking that 30 second ad, you're trying to communicate that, you know, we've got the money to prove to you that we can, we actually solve this problem. They, they don't explain how they do it because it's magic, right? Like you take a pill and everything gets better. You get a shot and everything gets better. Like what is Kuru's version of that is actually visually compelling? And is there a way to do that? We need, we've tried literally three or four different ways of trying to communicate with three different structures of internal employee hired a con- contractor or a consultant who was one of the biggest spenders in Facebook in the world. And then we hired one of the best agencies I've ever met to go and try and tackle that. None of them have really helped us get to scale on Facebook. And so, yeah, I don't know what the future holds for the brand, but I'm really excited for them to keep pushing the envelope and testing. All I can think of when I hear that story is, well, I want to try. <laughs> <laughs> 
I think you should. <laughs> yeah, it's not. If only you had bandwidth to take on another client or two. I don't have that right now. But it would be, it's just like when I hear that, it's just like, man, well, now I want to solve it and then shout it from the rooftops. Okay. So that's <laughs> like the competitive. This is the app. The like, yes, it's, that's the athlete kind of type. Right? In the yeah, sure. Yeah, I always hesitate calling myself that. I stopped playing after high school, like a lot of people. But anyway. Okay. So let's talk about this element of identifying good people. Cause I think this is like actually one of the really important things in e commerce leadership is there's a lot of money to be wasted on hiring bad employees and bad agencies. There's a lot of money to be wasted doing that. And I'm sure you've done that at times and you've, you've had some misses. But how, like, how did you find and how did you validate the skills of the, without knowing anything about Google ads, as you say, how did you validate the skills of the person who shut off 900,000 keywords for you and know that like, yes, if I turn her loose on this, she's going to do a good job. Talk me through the process of, of finding people like that, of trusting people like that, of letting them execute because it's it can be really hard to find that person and i think it's like one of the main things people are looking for as they grow their businesses is who they can really trust when they bring them on their team yeah it's interesting so to me the place that i always start is with the job description honestly so it's it's defining the seat and being really clear about what you want and defining i guess the structure so in that case we knew we were planning to hire two people and we defined the role of a paid search manager and, and defined a role of a paid search specialist. And those two jobs were posted simultaneously. And the other thing that I had been doing, this is kind of the interesting part. I started networking about that role probably six months before I was going to hire it or before I'd even gotten permission. And so, you know, I had pinged and, and reestablished contact with one of my former SEO teammates from Minnesota when I was in a role up there. That was the first kind of corporate marketing role. And she happened to know someone who was really talented in Chicago. And I took him to coffee and I'm like, hey, look, here's the scenario. Like I'm building this team and, and we're gonna we're gonna have a great time of it. I turned out I was able to hire that guy and within two weeks he quit. He's like, this is not a fit for me. So we were we were a little bit unclear about whether it was going to be managing people. And I was like Eventually you will manage people. And he said, no, I want that responsibility right away. And so the second time we were a little bit more clear around, here's the plan. And within six months, I see giving you this person to you and building up this team and giving that experience, but also just being really clear about communicating in the job description. These are the values that you need to bring to the table. I really, more than anything, I believe hiring on values-based fit is probably as important as anything anyone could do. Say more about that. What are like, what were those values that you've had and how did you screen for them? So today at Integrity Energy and previously at Kuru Footwear, we ran the business on a system called EOS, the Entrepreneurial Operating System. It's based on a book called Traction written by Gino Wickman. And one of the most important things that you do, I actually, we just spent our full day with our paid implement in Cleveland. And the, one of the first things that they do is they walk you through a process where they clearly define what the corporate values should be. And the process they run you through effectively is they say, I want you to visualize the one or two or maybe three best possible, best employees that you have on staff today. And I want you to list out what are the attributes that those people bring to work every single day. And then you look at all those attributes and you go through this process that they kind of call keep, kill and combine. And you go through and you go, and it, you ultimately get to three to five values that you agree as a leadership team. These are the values that we think embody what success looks like at our company. At Kuru, that was already clearly defined. Brett had done a lot of thinking around that and had written out his values. We still followed the full process as we were onboarding with EOS and we landed in the same place with the same four. I think we added back in a fifth that had been, you know, ridiculed by former employees and we brought it back in. We said, look, we want to be scrappy and smart, you know? So each company has their own kind of sets of values. So at, at Integrity, for example, we talk about work ethic. We talk about how everyone genuinely cares. We are up positive and upbeat and we're never satisfied. And so those four values are all expanded on with other kind of bullet points or other kind of paragraphical descriptions. I actually include those in every job description I write now. And I, I'm very clear, like if these corporate values appeal to you and you think that this is a great place where you'd want to work, you will be successful here. If you do not, then you shouldn't even apply. Don't waste your time. Don't waste my time because we hire based on these values. We promote based on these values. We reward based on these values. We recognize employees based on these values. They are endemic in everything that we do. 
there's a through line with every single time we're giving people feedback. We want to give them shout outs and tie it back to a value. Um, so that's somewhat new at Sears. We didn't have that philosophy, but I've also always screened for just some of my personal values along the way about being positive and upbeat and not a negative Nelly or an Eeyore, right? Like if you're positive and upbeat and you're constantly dealing with an employee who's whining about stuff, like that's like oil and water. You will not come off well together. And it's a vibe and a, and a relationship that's just not going to be grounded in a common thread. And, you know, you're going to be able to work well together. And so th this in particular employee at Sears, it turns out she had worked for an agency owner that I knew personally. And I literally, this is one of the one rare times where I reached out to him and said, Hey, any feedback on her? We're thinking of hiring her. And usually when you do that, you get a stone wall. You're like, here's the dates I can confirm of employment. And that's, that's it. Nothing more. But because I had this personal relationship with this guy, he was like super, you know, awesome. And was like, oh my gosh, we were really sort of loser. We had really great plans for her within the agency. Wish her out absolutely the very best. If you hire, you'll be the luckiest guy on the planet, right? Like what's there to say? So to me, it starts with a job description and being clear about what you need in that seat. So it's seat definition. And then I always write my own job descriptions. I never let anyone write a job description for me. If we're going to go to the market, and this is feedback I've given other team members that reported to me, if you've got a job that's open, there's nothing more important than you filling that job. That should be your priority one. Yes, you've got a day job, but if you're not making traction and moving forward on hiring this role, then it's not important to you. And I'm going to take it and give it to someone else who can use it. And so it's that thing of kind of constantly being networking. You know, well, the first thing I did here in Cleveland, when I were still in the process of selling the house in Salt Lake City and getting here, I started adding Cleveland folks to my network on LinkedIn, fully not even knowing who I was going to hire for first, but I want to, you know, I want to add 50 to hundred people that are Cleveland and digital media marketing centric. So now I've got the second order value of like, Hey, I'm posting this role in Cleveland. Can you please share with your network in case, you know, no, if you know someone, it's that hard, that sort of hard work, sloggy stuff that, that goes, you know, people don't think about way ahead of when they're going to need to hire. I mean, if you wait too long to build your network, you've waited, if you wait until you have a need, you're already too late, you know, because now you're coming with your hat in your hand. If I can add value to my network ahead of time and the, eventually all that kind of good work, those good deeds come back to you over time. That makes sense of the way I've watched you operate in the world, which is that you are genuinely positive, like you said, you're genuinely friendly. And you're also like trying to be provide value to people in significant ways. It's funny, I probably should have seen that as self serving before. Now, of course, like, I mean, that a little tongue in cheek. And I, I've I actually recently did an episode where I noted that I actually don't believe there's such a thing as a human action that's not self interested. So that could go down a whole rabbit hole. But it sounds like there's like a strategic element of it for you too, that you're really thinking about all the time. How do you make sure to stay connected to where people are who are useful? That's going to help you cull the crowd a little. And it's funny now that I think about it, like a lot of the folks that I see be successful on the brand side and at the agency side or whatever, one of the things they're really good at is putting themselves out there in a way that they can just make relationships. And whether or not you hire, whether or not you ever hire me for something as we've become friends, right? Well, what now could be the case is that like, man, if I did know somebody in Cleveland, I would for sure recommend they go interview with you, you know, because I would say like, oh, this guy's a good dude. Like you, you should at least go have a conversation with him or whatever. And or if there's some digital marketing help you needed at some point, even if I couldn't do it, I might be the pathway to the person who can or whatever. And I've watched it happen even as people have hired me where like my network now becomes valuable to them, even if I'm not the main person who's valuable just because they've made friends with me. So this that's interesting. I mean, yeah, I was, I was I've had some other conversations recently where I've sort of wanted to say to people when they ask me, what should I do? How do I get to here? You know, how do I build my company or how do I go get in the door in these places or any of those kinds of things? And I, I have stressed to them at points that I think building the network is a really valuable thing. The other thing that's important to me, I'm sorry to interrupt you. The, the other thing that's important to me personally is like the reason I do what I do is because I get a lot of personal reward out of watching people grow right? Like watching them develop their careers. And a lot of that, sometimes it has to do with me and my direction and the structure that I put in place. But I do believe as a people manager, one of your primary jobs is to be developing their people, your people, so that they're ready to take the next step in their career, right? Ideally, that's that opportunity exists on your team. If it doesn't exist on your team, then inside your business. And if it doesn't exist inside there, then somewhere else. 
another flavor of that is my, my ability to connect. If you had a, if you decided you were going to go build an agency from scratch instead of just being an advisor and a consultant, because you saw that, that you could help more people that way. And I had a, someone I could introduce to you. I would gladly do that because I would know that that's an opportunity to help them progress their career. Right. So there's multiple flavors of that, watching those, building those connections and watching people flourish. Like the, that is literally the most rewarding thing to me. When I left Carew, it was very affecting. Yeah. I was in tears when we were saying goodbye and the, the, you know, Brett pulled the whole team together. And one of the reasons was because I sat and looked across the room and there are four or five people that I had been with from six or seven or eight years ago who started out as a manager, director, and now, you know, VP, EVP, SVP, CMO, like that connection point and that ability to influence their lives and that trajectory that they have is to me, that's the, that's where my power button lives, right? It's like deep inside my chest. And if, you could, if I could press that all day, the, the dopamine hit would be ridiculous. And so this is just another flavor of that to me. That's a much less tactical answer in the sense of like, it's not like you're trying to build something and do something. And of course, that's how most of us are operating all the time and that we're not, part of it is just like, yeah, being the kind of person who has values and wanting to create some good in the world and those and getting pleasure out of that. By the way, that's part of what I mean by it being a self-interested action is that like, yeah, you do all of those things for other people and because it's a source of joy to you. And that's great. Do you think that on something like internal organization building, when you talk about the values that you talk about, are those not things that everybody says that they have and share? Like, do people come to you and not say that they are never satisfied and not say that they are positive? Like, Nobody comes in and be like, yeah, I'm a pretty negative guy and I'm satisfied easily. You know what I mean? Like, so how, like, how do you actually take values that you're talking about as you try to build an organization and make them something that actually screens out the people who don't meet them? Well, I'll give you an example. I know someone on Twitter that just recently talked about how they were, um, they, what was the exact quote? That there's a better relationship with people that are content rather than driven. <laughs> yeah. Right? And so like, yeah, well, what I said was, what I said, I'm, I'm more attracted to people who are deeply content than deeply driven. That's what I said. Yeah. Not that they're, and not that they're mutually, they're not necessarily mutually exclusive. So, right. If you're both and you say, well, I'm deeply content and I'm also deeply driven. Okay. Never satisfied might be a value that you would feel comfortable with. If you say, no, I'm just, I'm a nine to fiver. And you know, I believe that this is more important to me than this. I, you and I had this conversation. You probably don't remember, but when you were first looking for your next thing, I knew one of our mutual friends that you had talked to. And I was like, that's a terrible fit. Like, I think I circled back after the fact. I'm like, you talked to this person, didn't you? You said, yeah, I did. I'm like, and it's probably a terrible fit. Well, you're talking about Maytab and I don't mind saying it because Maytab is public about this. And I love this about him. I say this as a positive thing that Maytab says, and he's been public about this on Twitter too, all over the place. For that sure. He says like, yep. I'm looking for people who want to work really, really hard. Maytab's a genius. And a great operator and a good dude. Like he's a kind person who's gracious with his yes. time and all those things. So, and you've said so many times on prior podcasts. So yeah, yeah. you so talked about this publicly. Yeah, this is just a separate, this is different values. And I, and, but that, that I feel like is an extreme example, right? In the sense that like, he really has a very high demand for that. And so what, how do you sort out who those people are that are going to really fit some kind of, you know, organizational values like that? How do you actually screen for the people who meet those values uh, especially when they're sort of broad. Values. The risk is the values are too broad, right? So there's always a risk of that for sure. But what, to me, it comes back to your interviewing methodology. I mean, I was trained in behavioral interviewing as a style and as a way to kind of craft the right questions. And so much so that when I see job descriptions, I'm a little more than a little bit dangerous because I can pick out the four or five questions that people are going to ask. So I'm really good at like interview prep, not only for me, but for friends, you know, so, you know, I look at something like work ethic and all the things we've got listed under work ethic as a value here at Integrity. And I have questions that I've crafted. I mean, you've got a role open now for project manager and there are specific questions. It's, Tell me about a time that you specifically did X and you got to dig. Like you can't just take the easy salesy answer because the first answer is like, yeah, well, I did this. Well, what role did specifically did you play in that project? Help me understand. So usually it's a skills-based question where you're really digging for that goal. But it can be a values-based question as well. And so, you know, behavioral interviewing is essentially taking the specific thing you're trying to make sure that they have, that they're bringing to the table because you've identified it as something you want that is going to live in that seat and asking them, well, tell me about a time when you did this, you know, what specifically did you do and what was the outcome of the activity that you, you drove, right? A lot of that should be in resumes. It's not. I've seen people write really bad resumes. 
I've seen very senior marketers with not a single number on their resume. Like, are you kidding me? The entire resume should be, you know, achieve this outcome by doing this specific thing inside this business, you know, incre- doubled revenue in two years by doing blah, 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 right? very specific things. If you're a marketer, there's no role that's more measurable. And you know, it, it, granted, I come from that performance world where, you know, demand capture is the thing and the funnels are super measurable and I'm not the creative genius. I'm not a brand guy that's going to go out and spend millions on TV and create a warm fuzzy to make you go buy my thing. That's a little less measurable potentially, but everything's measurable. Almost nobody listening to this podcast is that person's spending Coca-Cola's millions to keep affecting the Coca-Cola brand, you know? So there's a couple of guys that I follow that, you know, insist on having that debate every now and then, you know, that I think getting the questions dialed is what the real answer and not taking the initial answer as the real answer digging. Yeah. It's, I mean, one of the things I hear in a lot of your answers to this, it's funny because I remember I asked you this at ECF and I tweeted this also, but when we met, I said like, how did you get good at managing people? And you said practice. And that's a great answer. And but like part of what I hear about this is sort of like the sort of the experiential capital making itself known on doing this a lot of times. Like you've probably made mistakes and then gone back and seen this in the interview process, I assume. And then got like, oh, I actually got to screen a little bit more closely and get into the details of these sorts of things. And there's also like a level of thoughtfulness that you're expressing, especially in hiring that I think is really helpful. The idea that you're going to go spend a lot of money on this person that you're going to hire, especially for like a growing bootstrapped organization, that's a major cost center in the business if it's not a value center, right? So really thinking hard about that, you know, maybe six figure expenditure for this business by like, taking the time to write a great job description, really knowing what your values are that somebody has to align with, asking good, thoughtful questions that dig underneath the surface. It just makes it all sound like when you roll that together, like hiring it, hiring and team building and management, all these, they're not that they're not quick and easy. And that they require like a level of detail and thoughtfulness that are like very important. I think that's what's reflected in a lot of your answers. Before having you expand on that, we only got a couple more minutes. But so I want to hear you actually expand on one other thing, which is EOS. I think that one of the things that e-commerce brands need to do is they need to think about as they grow and as they scale, they need to be very careful to make sure that they do that with real awareness and focus of how their OPEX is scaling, where that money is going. OPEX, I think, is something that needs to be managed very carefully for an e-commerce business in particular because it should be one of the places that you create profit in your business. That OPEX can stay small as a percentage of revenue and I, this is a mistake I made at 4400. It's very easy to get sloppy because it's like, oh, I need this help over here, so I'll hire this help. Oh, I need this help over here, I'll hire this help. Instead of being really thoughtful and careful about that. So one of the systems that people use to be careful about how they grow an organization and to be thoughtful and focused and align the organization, of course, not just grow an organization, but run the organization in an ongoing way is EOS. So maybe just one last thing here. Talk to me a little bit about how you've used EOS. Should people use EOS? what it has done for you in growing organizations as they're starting to experience sort of the challenges of scale. Yeah. The thing that I love about EOS and we experienced it at Crew, and I just experienced it today is it, whenever you bring a leadership team together to get together with our paid implementer, we always come out of the room more aligned than ever. And I think I'm not, I'm a little bit con- convinced that's because of EOS and because of your, the fact you're paying someone a good deal of money to sit in their room and they're running a similar process on you. But so, uh, to be fair and transparent, some of it could just be getting off site with the leadership team and spending the time to do that. The thing that I like about EOS. I don't know, think so. Yeah, I think that those meetings can be run badly and can end up with not yes. very many actionable things. So, I mean, it can help. It does probably help because people in the room together is helpful. But I'm inclined to agree with you. I really think it's and, and having that independent voice who's there to call bullshit on you when you're you know, steamrolling people and you're like, you're the biggest voice in the room and you're not giving other people a chance to have their say and you're really not fully aligned. You, but oh, we come out incredibly aligned whenever we run one of these processes. It's well worth the investment. It's a lot of money. It really is. I mean, and it's worth it. We've never once regretted it to the point where I, like the third act of my career when I'm done operating businesses, I'm going to probably go become a, a paid implementer for EOS. I think I'd be really good at it. And I see the value that it brings to companies. And I think that's another way to kind of get richly rewarded by helping you know, businesses grow and do their thing. So... That's five years from now, though. That's not for a while. I've always thought that if I was building a company again, it's about, I've even thought about doing basically like an EOS Lite just for me, just like something, some kind of system to organize my thinking and plans and actions in a way that goes like, yes, spend the time here. No, don't spend the time here. Just because focus is so hard. Everybody has shiny object syndrome and having something that's going to actually yeah. organize your behaviors relative to, towards your 
goals and things like that just seems so helpful. So, well, I'd be happy to stay connected and talk about that offline sometime. That'd be fun. Yeah, yeah. I will probably follow up with you about that. Where can people find you and what should people do besides they should probably work for you now in your next in your next job, which we didn't even really have time to get to. So I have to follow up about that. But yeah, connect with me on LinkedIn, right? Yeah, can find me on Twitter at Sean McGinnis. I'm on LinkedIn the same way. It's S-E-A-N-M-C-G-I-N-N-I-S. It's linked in the show notes. Um, it's linked in the show notes. Go look there. I'm everywhere on the socials. I don't use Facebook very often these days, but happy to connect on Twitter. Um, I do a little bit of consulting and advisory work on the side. It's very light. I've got two clients right now. Not really looking for any others, but if there, if anyone's interested in connecting and exploring that, um, you can actually reach me, email me at sean at ecomadvisor.co. It's A-D-V-I-S-O-R and 2M, Ecom Advisor, no website. You can find me there though. I do a little bit of, of that work on the side. I actually just took on a new client there and really excited to work with a, a young brand that's growing really rapidly. So we're looking to shortcut and help get a little bit of guidance and help them avoid the pitfalls and growing an e-commerce business. There are a lot of them. So that's awesome. All right, Sean, thanks so much. And make sure also to reach out to Sean on Twitter and ask him to reply to your comment to get your thing or something like that. Like engagement bait him on Twitter. He loves that. He's a huge fan of engagement bait on Twitter. So definitely go do that. No, he will. That's an auto block, Sean, doing the Lord's work of blocking people who are engagement baiting on Twitter, which is another great thing about Sean. Okay. That's a dumb little comment at the end to, uh, as a way to end a good conversation. Thanks, Sean, for your time. I appreciate it so much. And uh, I'm sure we'll talk to you again. Thanks, Andrew. Great to see you, man. You too. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of the show. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Sean as much as I did. As always, I would be so grateful if you would rate, review, and especially if you would share with a friend. Don't forget to check out my sponsor from this show. That's Settle. I'm a big fan of them. I reached out to them personally and individually to try to get them as a sponsor on this show because I liked working with them so much at 4x400 and would gladly do that again if I was running a brand right now. So go check them out, including their whole platform. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to this show. I've got a couple episodes coming up that I'm really, really excited about, including another solo episode where I'm going to talk about why I basically don't ever look at revenue anymore as one thing, but I only look at it as two things, new customer revenue and returning customer revenue. I see those as two totally separate problems to solve, really almost completely separate in D2C, in e-commerce. And one of the unique things about D2C is that you can analyze those so completely separately and distinctly and solve problems distinctly. I think doing that well is one of the keys to being great at D2C. And so if you are running D2C brands, that will be an episode that you will get value from. I also have a really, really exciting interview coming up with actually my longest tenured current client. I have mentioned a client before who runs gyms and who trains athletes. And I have been cagey about mentioning who that is on purpose, but I'm going to probably bring the CEO of that podcast on in the next couple of weeks, of that podcast, of that brand on in the next couple of weeks so you can hear from him directly. It's a really, really cool business doing very interesting things, working with professional athletes, and I want you to hear about it. So subscribe, get ready to listen to those couple of episodes. And of course, as always, you can email me at podcast at ajfgrowth.com or reach out to me on Twitter at Andrew J. Ferris. Thanks so much for listening. I will see you next time.